should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Happy Tuesday. I'm so excited for Tuesday. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us, and I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Hi, Hello, Michelle. John. How are you doing? I'm doing great. great. You know what? I'm going to fix something really quick because uh, I can't hear myself. Can you hear yourself? What? <laughs> you know, Microsoft decided to uh, do some updates over the weekend without our permission. <laughs> and so walking into the studio on Monday morning, it was like everything was just kind of weird. It felt like there was a Casper the <laughs> friendly ghost that was hanging out with us. Um, so, uh, there's just some weird bugs happening here and there, but I think we can get through today's show. Good. Um, as you know, John Zipper from Commonwealth Club hosts, uh, our Friday week to week political roundtable talk. And so sometimes I like to throw to him to be like, what's going on with the world? Because Michelle doesn't like to talk about politics. <laughs> Perfect <laughs> thought. Has the, uh, the, the United States government come crashing down yet? I mean, I know that, you know, police officers are looking to jail Tim Cook because of his refusal to, you know, uh, create some software that would allow for them to, uh, I don't know, have a backdoor to the terrorist's cell phone. Uh, he's not in jail yet, and he's got <laughs> enough money to fly to any island he wants to escape to, so I'm not worried about Tim Cook. <laughs> Well, you know, we will be talking about the uh, the United States, I guess you could say. And we'll be at least <laughs> that, talking that is about. That's what it's called. Yes. Yeah, we'll be talking about the presidential elections later on this uh, this morning, uh, or I should say, afternoon for some of you uh, who are not with us in, on the West Coast. Um, and I think that John is the right guy to do that. I mean, because you're like best friends with with every single one of them, especially Donald Trump. I heard that you've stayed at Trump Towers before, and. I, he hired me personally to escort people out of his his rallies. That's, that's what I do. <laughs> if it, if it, look, if it gets rough, it gets rough. I, hire, hire the gay guy, yeah, to do something like that. That sounds <laughs> appropriate. It. Yeah. So stick around for that. Uh, and I guess, you know, we should definitely start the show. I've been mentioning that uh, I spent some time in El Paso. And, you know, before I went to El Paso, I mean, my partner, um, she hid my passport to make sure that I would not cross the border, you know, to, to Juarez. <laughs> um, uh, there's just been so many movies and things in the media about how dangerous it is in Juarez and, and whatnot. But at the same time, um, I did recognize that there was an absolute difference. I heard from some of the uh, uh, politicians and elected officials from Texas who talked about uh, some of their top issues that impact LGBTQ people. So I'm very excited for our guest today who is going to talk about the LGBTQ LGBTQ community and the criminal, or I should say the justice system here in the United States. Um, and so let's get our program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. 
Our guest today uh, is with the Movement Advancement Project, and there's a new report out that will give us some insight as to how the criminal justice system impacts the LGBTQ community and, and is going to give us some raw data. I think it's very important that when we talk about these things, we actually have some, some data to back it up. There's been uh, so many um, instances in which I've had conversations with right-wing politicians in which they say, prove it. So our guest is going to help us do that. Let's welcome Naomi Goldberg to the program. Naomi, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Hi, John. Hi, Michelle. Good morning. <laughs> um, I think, you know, we could sit here all day long in what I have come to realize is probably one of the most comprehensive reports on this issue, the LGBTQ community and the uh, criminal justice system in the United States. I think the easiest thing to do is kind of walk us through, first of all, uh, just a summary of, of some of the findings. And so, you know, um, Let's start with with how many people or individuals uh, in the, the who's currently, I guess, uh, incarcerated or or is in, or affected by the justice system today that identify as LGBTQ. Sure, and I think these are the stats that are most surprising to many people um, outside the LGBT community, but many of us in the community are not all that surprised. So. Um, a survey that was conducted in 2011 of folks currently in state or federal prisons found that about 8% of them identify as lesbian, gay, or bi. Um, and that's about twice what we find for the national average just at the general population, right? That's about 38 or 4%. So twice the rate of overrepresentation um, in our jails and prisons. And um, that was a survey that was done in 2011 by actually the federal government, um, one of the few instances where they actually survey um, about sexual orientation. And then in a survey, um, a similar survey done where they asked about trans folks, there's an estimate that there's about 5,000 transgender people currently in jails and prisons in the U.S. Uh, we're certainly hearing a lot these days about how there's a disproportionate number of African Americans and other minorities in prison. What about the racial makeup of the LGBTQ population in prison? So we don't have a lot of data about that. Um, one area where we do, and I think this is really a stunning finding, is that when you look at youth in juvenile um, detention facilities, about 20% of them identify as LGBT or gender nonconforming in some way. Shockingly, 40% of those um, of girls identify as LGBT or gender nonconforming. But that when you look at girls and boys in these facilities, 85% um, of the kids who identify as LGBTQ are kids of color. Wow. So just incredible disproportionate impact on really queer kids of color. Um, and I think if you extrapolate, you know, certainly knowing what we know about the U.S. justice system generally and the overrepresentation, particularly of African-American people in the system, it, it's not a far stretch to um, imagine that many of the LGBT folks in our jails and prisons are certainly people of color. So uh, give us some sense of how they get there. And I don't mean, you know, the obvious, but I mean, uh, in other words, are is the same disproportionate number of LGBTQ fo folks being directed into the uh, criminal justice system from, you know, start to finish, meaning are they the same numbers going into, you know, courtrooms and being sentenced into prison, or do LGBTQ folks get uh, sentenced harsher, more harshly than uh, straight in potential criminal uh, folks? Sure. So in our report, we really tried to take the really big picture look at the cycle of incarceration. Mm -hmm. So much of the report focuses on what pushes LGBT folks into the criminal justice system, and we can talk a bit about that later. But I think to your point about once you have been arrested and what happens to you after that, and do you end up serving jail time, we know that there are LGBT people who 
have attorneys that either don't understand LGBT issues or how someone's sexual orientation or gender, gender identity can intersect with race and economic status and so forth to put you in situations where, um, where you are pushed into the system and to really be able to take a holistic look at someone's case. Um, we also know that a lot of folks, um, LGBT people in particular, who are in prisons and jails, um, didn't receive adequate counsel. Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were held without release um, for, via bond. Um, a new survey from Black and Pink, which is of LGBTQ folks in prisons and jails, found that a shockingly high number of them couldn't afford bail or bond. So they're sitting in jails waiting um, charges. And just like in lots of areas of life in the U.S. where LGBT people face discrimination, when you're put in front of a jury or a judge, much of those same um, biases and stereotypes and so forth come out. Um, And so we we anecdotally see juries and judges and even prosecutors and sometimes even defense attorneys not using the best language or relying on stereotypes um, when it comes to an LGBT person in the courtroom. So all of those factors kind of in the justice system we think of as, as pushing LGBT folks into jails and prisons, um, as well as kind of all the other stuff that gets someone actually arrested and put in front of a judge. Michelle Miel with John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club. We're speaking to Naomi Goldberg of the Movement Advancement Project, and we're looking through a very comprehensive report that the organization has put out there um, touching on the LGBTQ community and the criminal justice system. Naomi, uh, thank you so much for walking us through this. I feel vindicated, you know, because <laughs> I, you know, so many of us kind of um, silently talk about our experiences um, within the criminal justice system, even for minor offenses. Um, and then it's hard to actually articulate, you know, what we're walking on, uh, this fine line between actually being discriminated against or being treated differently. Um, and so this this gives us a, some insight as to, you know, uh, why we might feel this way or, or the fact that it justifies that we should feel this way. Um, I mentioned that I spent some time in El Paso and, and so I had the opportunity to sit with a, a woman from Homeland Security. And so the topic was on human trafficking, sex work. And so I kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit. As you mentioned earlier, it's about 5,000 trans uh, people who are you know, currently incarcerated across the country. And that, that, that figure, I'm sure, we can add to. But, um, you know, she mentioned that there are diversion programs and that they do make a point to, to not immediately uh, criminalize trans sex workers and they try to work with them to get to say the, the root of the issue, the, the people who are, who are victimizing them. Um, what are your thoughts in, you know, and again, I didn't get a chance to go through the entire report, but what, what are your thoughts in terms of that part of the relationship? I kind of feel like I'm skeptical about those diversion programs that they don't always work. Well, I think certainly Anecdotally and from data, we know that um, when people are arrested for um, sex work, for engaging in sex work, that is frequently not what's in their best interest. And um, we sort of enforce anti-prostitution laws that target the folks who are engaged in sex work and not um, other people, um, and that many times folks aren't given the support that they need. You know, they're sent to jail or, or um, prison, they're fined, instead of being connected to health care and housing and services that, that may help them. Um, I think bigger than that, when you think particularly about trans women and trans women of color, I think two things are happening. I mean, on the one hand, you have police who engage in profiling. 
um, where they assume that any trans woman, trans woman of color who's walking down the street is, you know, the saying is walking while trans, right? She, she must be out soliciting. Um, and so trans women, whether they're engaged in sex work or not, may be picked up by police and that begins a whole cascade of things that can happen in that interaction with a police officer around identity documents and who are you and how are you dressed and, and so forth. And that can end up pushing trans people into um, the system. And so you see this a lot in um, a lot of the advocacy in New York around stop and frisk and around um, folks who are just carrying condoms and police saying, well, you have so many condoms, you must therefore be um, soliciting. So I think that's the first piece. The second piece is that we do need to acknowledge that you know, some people are engaged in sex work and that um, that, that is, is a concern and that in what ways can we make sure that they are safe and that they have access to the services that they need. And I think by focusing on anti-prostitution enforcement, we're not really getting at that piece. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to add to that a little bit with John, when John asked you, you know, what kind of leads to uh, LGBTQ people in the criminal justice system. By the way, um, survivor sex is huge in the LGBTQ community. Uh, right, Naomi, I'm sure that in some of your data you found there are numerous reasons um, for also the basic fact that some of us get kicked out of our homes. Some of us are living on the street. Some of us, um, you know, need to turn to certain uh, things to live. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the survey from the National um, transgender Discrimination Survey, which was conducted by the task force and NCTE and others, 48% of trans people in that survey said that they had engaged, um, sorry, 48% of those engaged in sex work had experienced homelessness, right? So this link between when you're discriminated against in all these areas of life, in employment, in housing, in accessing government services, and you're left really trying to survive, you know, this can be a path. And I think certainly that is one path to sex work. I think, you know, it's also understanding that there are other reasons that people may engage in sex work. You know, you mentioned trafficking. Um, that is certainly a, a component, you know, and there are other people for whom this is um, a line of work in which they engage. And, and it's not about coercion or um, kind of income for last resort. But I think if we can talk about and fix the ways in which trans people in particular and LGBT people generally face pervasive discrimination across so many areas of life, we can help ensure that people can have support and can, and can survive. Um, and this doesn't have to be an option of last resort. Are they facing uh, tougher, longer sentences? Well, we, we kind of talked about you, you know, judges and, and sometimes the lawyers basically failing uh, LGBTQ folks. Um, is it, does that carry through to parole boards? Are they less likely to get out, uh, you know, at, at the same time that a non-LGBT person would? So this is where the lack of data is, is really hamstringing many of our efforts. Mm-hmm. We just don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, very few places, you know, think about the last time you were actually asked about your sexual orientation or gender identity in any survey. Um, so we just don't really know. I mean, certainly anecdotally, there are instances where folks talk about, you know, having their sexual orientation or gender identity used against them, um, you know, oh, this person may be more likely to engage in fraud or something that could work against them in a situation like you mentioned or going up for parole. Um, there is some research around, around sentencing, and much of that research has been done focused on people of color, particularly African-American men, and that they get longer sentences. And so I think when you combine the fact that we know that most of these folks who are LGBT who are in the justice system are probably people of color, we can assume that that is the experience that people are having, whether it's based on sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination or rooted in um, race or ethnicity 
um, based discrimination. And certainly those are conflated in many places and, and play off of each other. Naomi, we're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, I want to continue the discussion about the LGBTQ community and the criminal justice system. So don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Sines, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. Tuesdays are special because John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us co-hosting. Thank you so much for being with us, John. Always a pleasure. Our special guest today is Naomi Goldberg, who's with the Movement Advancement Project. And we're talking about a comprehensive report uh, touching on the LGBTQ community and the criminal justice system. So the, before the break, um, we discussed, you know, the disproportionate criminaliz- criminalization of LGBT people entering the system, what happens in the system, such as discrimination in legal proceedings and unfair and inhumane treatment. Um, and so now I, I think we should definitely touch on life after conviction. So, Naomi, you know, uh, I had mentioned this before and over and over and over again. There's this incredible disadvantage for LGBTQ people, LGBTQ people of color and also our youths um, who identify as queer. Once you're in the system coming out, you're already at a, a huge disadvantage. Yeah, so we... We sort of articulate in the report two barriers that face LGBT folks when they're trying to rebuild their lives after being involved in the criminal justice system. You know, first is the ways in which we're discriminated against because of our sexual orientation and gender identity and the lack of systems that can really address that and the way in which reentry programs don't. And then the second is now you have a criminal record. And so you combine that, you know, 
the discrimination we face in housing and employment in other places, plus the well-documented barrier that having a criminal record poses to finding a job, finding a place to live, being able to access public benefits, being able to see your kids, all of those things. So for LGBT folks, it's just lumped on all of this. Um, and that few places have the resources or the competency to address people who have both of those things happening. Do we have any uh, knowledge about different areas of the country that maybe take different... I mean, is anyone, you know, any state or, or locality trying to address this issue either legislatively or with the programs in the prisons or anything like that? Or is this pretty much a uniform problem across the country? So I think the fact that we don't know is indicative that very few places are doing things. Mm -hmm. um, although I was just speaking with someone um, I read a program in Delaware where they're working to see about getting folks who are leaving accurate identity documents. So much of when you when you get ready to leave a prison, um, they make sure that you have a driver's license in some states. Um, and so in what cases can we make sure that trans folks can get an identity document that is actually one that they can use out in the world? And so I think the more that we can talk about that, um, the more that we can talk about when you're doing reentry planning with someone in a prison, um, to what extent are they getting the services that they're going to need when they leave? And in some cases, this is done quite well. When you, some places, I know in Texas, for example, they've been working to integrate as part of reentry planning HIV care to make sure that when folks leave prison and they've been receiving very regimented HIV care, and that isn't true in all places, but in many places, that when they leave, they're connected with some place that they can go, so there isn't a gap in their in their care. And I think when we think about the needs of trans folks. Um, that is something that, that we could start thinking about, you know, making sure that trans people are connected to physicians, um, that they can make sure that they continue the care that they're receiving. That being said, very few trans people actually receive medically competent care in prisons and jails. Naomi, I want to, you know, as we wind down, I want to leave people with some uh, uh, data that, uh, um, you know, it, it's shocking, but then it's not. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but for me, it's like, you know this internally and you try to process it, but we've we've not been able to really articulate it this well, I think, up until, honestly, this this report, at least for, for myself and the uh, organization I'm involved with. But, you know, LGBT people are overrepresented over in the criminal justice system. And so when you look at it from the larger population, what does that actually mean? I think this is an important point, because I think particularly when we talk about the impact of reform, um, we are still a very small percent of the total population, both nationally, right, LGBT people, about 4%, um, and in prisons and jails, still a, a relatively small percent, you know, 8%, 10%. That being said, the fact that we are overrepresented at twice the rate is indicative of a problem and shows that you know, there are things that are pushing us into the system that need to be addressed. And I think this is where, to your point, grassroots organizations who are doing work on the ground know Right? They know that it's the police are targeting certain areas um, of town or you know, they're going after the kids who are hanging out outside the LGBT center. I live in Chicago, right? Like folks who are going after the, the queer kids of color who are hanging out outside the LGBT center, and those are the folks that are getting arrested by police. So we all know this, but I think having the data um, and illuminating the data and talking a little bit about why can help drive advocacy both within the LGBT movement this is something we need to be focusing on, but also as we're reforming and pushing for criminal justice reform that, hey, our folks have needs and that improvements for us improve the systems across the board. And so it's, it's helping provide that dialogue back and forth between broader CJ reforms and in the, within the LGBT movement. 
So the report actually does provide then some some high level recommendations about how to you know what to focus on. Um, you've probably gone into some of that, but give us kind of a wrap up of what those you know the 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 reports are targeting of certain things to fix. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think across the board we need better non discrimination protections, and I think that needs to be you know if we're passing anti profiling laws, which there's a federal law, a proposed federal law that would look at um, racial profiling, we need to include that officers, um, law enforcement officers, shouldn't be able to profile based on sexual orientation or gender identity as well. Um, I think that would you know, certainly stem some of the push into the system. We need to really substantially look at how prisons and jails treat people, regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity and the services that they receive, and to what extent does that actually encourage rehabilitation and someone being able to rebuild their lives when, they're, when they are um, when they've exited the system, and when we look at the sexual assault and violence against LGBT folks in prisons, safety is a huge concern. And like I said, any change that we can do to make these places safer would it help everyone? Um, and then I think you know, just the conversation we're having about reentry, the way in which we just don't support people who are leaving prison, and then we're surprised when recidivism rates are at three quarters over five years. There's a real problem. And the more that we can support people who are leaving and provide tangible services and programs that are competent and that are LGBT competent, I think those are the big three things that I um, keep trying to harp on in this report and, and I think are really justified given the disparities that we that we are illuminating here. Those are really important. How much of that is then uh, the government's responsibility and how much of that should be filled in by uh, uh, you know private organizations and individuals? I mean, these are... You know, prisons and jails are run by government entities, um, but they are not immune to um, public advocacy, and certainly reentry programs are, many of them are contracted. And so I think the more that we push for change at the system level, but also the more that we push grassroots organizations that are providing support and say, hey, have you thought about how would a trans person access your program, or can you add something for know, an LGBT youth who is leaving a JJ facility and their school might not be very safe for them. Can we connect them with, you know, an LGBT organization that might be able to provide them with some support? And so I think the more that we have those conversations at the real grassroots level, that that can be hugely important at the same time as pushing at the systems level, which lots of advocates are doing. Naomi, here in San Francisco, um, when we look at, you know, Black Lives Matter, an organization that was created uh, or founded here in the Bay Area, calling attention to uh, the Trayvon Martin issue. You know, two of the three founders are also LGBTQI. And uh, we continue to see smaller organizations spring up like Black Seed Liberation, who are mainly comprised of, uh, you know, LGBTQ or or transgender uh, people of color. Um I, I think this is not an you know total uh, answer that you would give us, but more of an opinion. But you know, there's this uh, sometimes there's this uh, controversy that's around um, some of the stuff that we're talking about today, and 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 there's there's always that question like why why should we care? And I know that's such a big uh, question, but I mean, if the community um, can't even get married even though you know, we celebrated that last year. I mean, this is a very, very damaging impact to the community that's not just LGBTQ, right? Yeah, and I think it's not surprising that folks who are working on racial justice issues also understand the intersections, particularly if you're a queer woman of color, for example, that, that you get that 
your life is not segmented just along race or just along sexual orientation. And so I think the more that we can talk about how these things are so interconnected and the people living at the intersections are the most vulnerable, whether it's in a criminal justice system or when it comes to economic security or so forth. And so I think that that is the real message and where much of our work needs to be focused now is that there are people who the efforts have not necessarily been targeted specifically toward, and we haven't thought of much about how those intersections play out day to day. But when it's someone's life and they see how that happens for them, it, it becomes very clear and so important. So it doesn't seem totally surprising to me, and and I think it's why we should care. I mean, just the statistic, 40% of girls in a juvenile justice facility identify as queer. Like, what is going on? Why are, Why is that happening? And that most of those girls are girls of color. Um, and the more that we can talk about that, I think it, it becomes clear that we need to be caring. Naomi, I want to thank you so much for joining us here this morning and uh, walking us through this very, very important report. And I, I can't thank you enough for, for working on this along with the Center for American uh, Progress. So thanks again. Thanks for having me and thanks for the attention to the issue. If you'd like to see the report or would like more information, visit lgbtmap.org. Don't go away. When we come back, John Zipper and I walk you through the elections, or I should say John Zipper is going to walk you through the elections. I'm also going to share a very personal story, uh, uh, an experience that I had with the criminal justice system. So you don't want to miss that. The Michelle Miao Show will be right back. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Like us on Facebook and share us with your friends. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Progressive Voices. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's spotlight on success and achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion. Uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me a real honor to, to be participating in this way. And I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time. Uh, not as far as our society has come. So I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a uh, pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them. We drove to Lake Tahoe and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and 
getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on success and achievement presented by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this mini Super Tuesday, as I was just schooled by John Zipper of the Commonwealth <laughs> Club. John Zipper let us know that it's not actually Super Tuesday. But why is it mini Tuesday? Well, we already had Super Tuesday, and that was, I guess, even more super than today is. But we have five <laughs> states today that we can talk about in a little bit. All right. Well, before we get into the discussion about the elections, I did promise you that I was going to share my story. And I think it's I think I should as a woman of color who is queer, in which I had a run in with the criminal justice system system a few years ago, um, was in a relationship, a bad relationship with a woman who, uh, you know, partied way too much. And um, and so she was, you know, violent after her uh, drug episode. So without getting into too much of it, I just want to tell this story that uh, in one of her violent episodes, um, the property manager of the apartment that uh, I was renting out for her <laughs> called the police. And there were six male police officers. And uh, she was, uh, it was late. It was two o'clock in the morning. And so she was just in her um, you know, panties and a tank top, and I was dressed, ready to get the heck out of there. So I was in a pea coat. My shirt, was, my button down was ripped. I remember her, you know, doing that. Um, I'm the person with the visible contusions, uh, but the six male cops all kind of ganged up on me because the first thing she said when she opened the door for the police officers was, she's been hitting me. Oh, jeez. And I was too afraid to say anything because, uh, you know, like a true classic victim, I was afraid that if I did say anything that was the truth, she would get in a lot of trouble uh, in understanding California laws when it comes to domestic violence disputes. So I stayed silent. And and so for those reasons, uh, they arrested me. And I was trying to rely on this fact that, you know, do your job. Like, you know, her pupils are obviously dilated. She's off her rockers. She's definitely not stable at this moment. So make the true assessment of what's really going on here. Um, and because, you know, that's what I rely on is for the police officers to protect and serve. Uh, but when we got to, uh, you know, and I got to, to the whole booking and, and all that, it was a uh, lesbian who was, who was booking me and she had to frisk and, you know, do that whole thing and check me. And she she obviously knew what was going on. And the only thing that she said to me was, I really wish that you were able to get out of there. So if that gives you any, you know, yeah, perspective as far as the experiences that LGBTQI people face when they're under, you know, investigation or like, you know, a, 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 uh, uh, what's it called? A complaint has been lodged against them. I mean, just by appearing and looking one way, you know, me as a butch lesbian, her pretty in her panties, they obviously were ready to take me down. <laughs> Um, if you'd like to share your stories, I think it's very important that we do. It's healing. So head to michellemeow.com and share with me. Now for something very important. The election. Yeah. It's happening whether you want it to or not. Uh, you know, at least when President Obama was running, there was this whole, uh, he had this whole huge campaign, a viral campaign of hope. So there was some positivity to it. This uh, election is so negative that uh, as a concerned citizen, as an educated woman, I've stayed away from it, uh, you know, very much so. I don't know about you, John. 
Um, well, I kind of live in it. It's, you know, a daily thing to follow. It's kind of, in some cases, especially on the Republican side, it's a train wreck that you cannot take your eyes away from. So that's the thing is uh, I am in I'm in disbelief, um, one, that that this dialogue is happening on national television. But at the same time, why should I be in disbelief considering who owns our national <laughs> media? Um, we had talked months and months ago when the, uh, you know, very beginning of the election uh, year, you had said that you, you didn't think that, you know, Trump was uh, someone that we should we should be afraid of. But here we are on mini Tuesday and he's just won another state, what, Ohio or something like that. He, he looks like he's the odds on favorite to win the nomination of the Republicans. And I, I can't uh, here. I, I all I can say is WTF. Um, this guy is nuts he's crazy he's angry he's hateful he's racist he's sexist he's all those things and so i think we should play a clip um to kind of give you insight of how crazy this is i certainly do not condone that at all jake february 23rd i'd like to punch him in the face referring to a protester february 27th in the good old days they'd have ripped him out of that seat so fast february 1st knock the crap out of him would you seriously okay just knock the hell i promise you I will pay for the legal fees, I promise, I promise. We have some protesters who are bad dudes. They have done bad things. Who's protesting, anybody? Oh, get out of here. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. Just knock the hell. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees, I promise. Get out of here, go home to mom. So that is our future president uh, speaking very presidentially. Actually, he, I'm joking, obviously, I don't think he's going to win the election, but then again, I said he wouldn't win the nomination. But when he's doing that, he thinks he's at his top, the top of his form, right? He's really playing to the crowd there, that he's being the persona he thinks they most want, Mr. Tough Guy. Now, whether or not he actually wants to see people carried out on stretchers, I don't know. A psychologist will have to figure that out. But um, he's this is not just him like going off the rails. This is him doing something for that he see he thinks the audience wants, and they do. Oh, that's the scariest part. And I, I don't want to get sued or anything, <laughs> depending on who's like listening here. But it kind of reminds me of like a history class that I took long, long, long ago in which some the, the teacher had answered for me why someone like Adolf Hitler would uh, come into power. Um, you know, when you take people who are at their knees or they're, you know, they're at their weakest moment in which I think a lot of Americans are at, uh, you know, uh, I would say, Financially, I would say our, our well, our fear, our fear of safety, uh, you know, as far as like uh, foreigners goes, he's been able to tap into that. He has. And, and really, both parties have uh, large groups of folks who are reacting very much on those economic fears. And that obviously that that is Bernie Sanders entire point. Obviously, <laughs> I say this in a nonpartisan way. He's a much better human being than <laughs> Donald Trump. You know, he's not out inciting or or praising violence or anything like that. But they they both are reacting to similar fears and experiences among their their uh, potential constituents. And I I personally think the the Nazi uh, uh, comparisons are over uh, over stretch yeah. just because Germany had lost a big war, it had lost its empire, it was occupied 
it was under crushing, crushing uh, uh, fines that it had to pay for World War One. It was, I mean, the economy had had collapsed to a degree that we can't even imagine. It's it, so right, but but you know, my my bigger problem with those kinds of things is just it doesn't have to be Nazism to be something that is just way too beyond mm-hmm. what we can accept. You mm-hmm. know, you don't have to be Hitler to be uh, beyond the pale. And um, I think what was it? There, there was a the uh, the Republican debate where Donald Trump defended and boasted about the size of his manhood. And at the next day, I mean, I knew Republicans and Democrats who were all just like, I can't believe this took place on a, you know, a presidential debate right. stage. Right. And, and I didn't mean it in terms of comparing Donald Trump uh, and his politics or his behavior or something that he would do. Oh, no, um, no. But, but to, the, yeah. the point you brought up was actually something that lots of people are, are bringing up and, and, and you see yeah. this all the time on Facebook. Right. People are just saying that, you know, because it does have those echoes yeah. of strong men up there making belligerent language, pointing at the minorities as mm-hmm. as the ones who are, you know, vermin. They're mm-hmm. they're coming over here and they're, you know, doing all these horrible things. And, and it's like, OK, actually, their level of crime is lower than that of you know, right. white folk right. like me. Yeah. Um, so it, it it is natural to go there. I'm just saying, actually, yeah. it's it's not exact. We can actually dislike him for exactly what he is. Now, you know, I, I want to uh, throw out there, though, the Republican Party had some pretty weak candidates. And um, I think that Donald Trump, uh, him by being a front runner or, or winning some of these states, it being a shocker or not, I don't think that he actually had someone to, you know, compete with. I think you're exactly right. I think what we are seeing is actually the sign of the weakness of the Republican Party. And I always have to, whenever I get too much into politics, I have to point out any views I'm expressing here are solely mine, certainly not of the <laughs> Commonwealth Club, which has people of every viewpoint. Um, but the Republican Party, it controls Congress right now, but it controls Congress because of some massive gerrymandering. And gerrymandering certainly is not a Republican invention. In fact, I think it was a Democratic inv- invention. But, um, you know, after 2020, we'll see it with the next redistricting uh, how that changes and if the Democrats... Because the Democrats, for example, in congressional elections, they get more total votes. But because of the way the districts are drawn, they don't get as, as many can, more candidates. Um, on the national level, you know, when we, you, you mentioned how I had said, oh, I don't think Donald Trump will still be around. A lot of us were kind of thinking, well, you know, there's George Bush. They're going to settle. Excuse me, Jeb Bush. They're going to settle on good old boring Jeb Bush before everything goes down. And then Jeb Bush totally tanked. Yeah, and, that was surprising. Yeah. And so it's like, well, who's the so-called establishment candidate in the Republican Party, and they they kind of decided Marco Rubio, but Marco Rubio is a Tea Party guy. That's not the establishment. That's the anti-establishment right. ring. And then he's been tanking. And so, uh, you know, I have all these people, all these Republicans who, and let's admit, you know, there are some very uh, honest and, and serious Republicans who are just very conservative, and they're looking for someone who's not Donald Trump, and they've gone through the five stages of grief and have finally decided, okay, Ted Cruz. Ted now, Cruz. Yes. And Ted Cruz. Now, Lindsey Graham was one of the senators who was running for president. He dropped out. He said not too long ago that uh, if you killed Ted Cruz on the floor of the U.S. Senate and the uh, trial was held in the Senate, you would not be convicted, meaning nobody there likes Ted Cruz. Now, basically, all the Republicans are starting to slowly come around and say, OK, Ted Cruz. <laughs> well, you know, someone like Ted Cruz had said recently, um, you know, to some media outlet that uh, 
if Donald Trump becomes the Republican candidate, we're we're going to allow, you know, Hillary Clinton to win. What are your thoughts about that? Um, I think she would. I mean, I, I think Donald Trump has this this core group who are saying finally someone is, you know, speaking the words that that most directly affect me. They, they, they're my feelings, I'm my anger about this country being taken away or whatever the heck it is that, that's driving them. Uh, you know, the economic anger. And it's and that's why that's why I've always actually been have been saying about Donald Trump. It really kind of doesn't matter when he misspeaks. It really doesn't matter when he makes a gaffe. It really doesn't matter if he comes out with a proposal for uh, some policy and people look at it and it turns out to be a complete piece of silliness because that's not what they're voting for him for. They're voting for that tough guy to defend them. I think that we should, uh, you know, end our discussion on Donald Trump by not j- joking around, but uh, as you know, serious as we can be on this show, um, remind you that the, you know, this is pretty scary, and, and uh, if you're at all a human being here in America, you should not vote for this person. And I hardly ever tell people how to vote, uh, but again, if you are at all human and you believe in treating other people with respect. I mean, this guy is just disgusting. So let's let's end with this um, clip that we have, I think, of, of women reading this quotes. Is a, yes, that, this yeah. is a commercial of women reading actual quotes by Donald Trump about women. And then we'll go to break, and then when we come back, we'll get to Hillary and Bernie. Bimbo, dog, fat pig. A person who is very flat-chested is very hard to be a 10. I'd look her right in that fat, ugly face of hers. Look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? She had the height, she had the beauty. She was crazy, but these are minor details. I like kids. I mean, I won't do anything to take care of them. I'll supply funds and she'll take care of the kids. You know, it really doesn't matter what they write, as long as you've got a young and beautiful piece of That must be a pretty picture, you dropping to your knees. There was blood coming out of her eyes, blood coming out of her wherever. Women, you have to treat them like Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Sines, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale.com. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care. 
serving your community. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this mini Tuesday. I shouldn't, it's not mini Super Tuesday. It's mini. It's a mini Super Tuesday. Okay, mini Super Tuesday. Get, get the name right, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mini Super Tuesday. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Thanks again for joining us uh, during this program. We started the first half of the show talking about the LGBTQ community and the broken criminal justice system and how it impacts the community. And now we're talking about the uh, the elections with John, our very own John Zipper. We could say that because he hosts <laughs> every Friday That's the right. week-to-week political roundtable talk uh, at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time right here on Progressive Voices. So... We definitely, uh, you know, told you to dump Trump. <laughs> now we're going to talk about what progressives have been talking about. And it also has been pretty ugly, um, you know, between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton's campaign. Yeah, though at its ugliest, it is still head and shoulders over what the Republicans are, uh, what the Republicans have been putting for on their stages and in their uh, ads and such. Um, but it it's gotten pretty testy uh if you say you know if you've been watching the last couple debates you know as they say the 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 knives have come out but at the same time they're i you know tough bare knuckled politics if you will people can understand that Mm -hmm. you know these are these are two very intelligent people two people who actually genuine genuine i mean they're not pulls apart on things you know they're they have different approaches on some things and they're they agree on some things but they're not on different sides of these things whether it's you know gun control or whether it's the economy uh whether it's uh whatever you can name a bunch of things certainly lgbtq rights um so it's in a way refreshing to watch them get into it it's a little depressing though and this is you know what if if you're a, a liberal or progressive supporter of this to still see some of the uh some of the denigration that some people see feel they need to do, you know, to really just tear it on Bernie Sanders or really just tear it on everything Hillary Clinton does. And it's like, Oh, really? Is one of those two is going to be the party's nominee and they're going to be up against probably Ted Cruz or Donald Trump. And I, let, let me step back on something. Um, back in the 1980s, back when I was a youngin, uh, the editor of the progressive magazine was, I hope I get his name correct. I think it was Erwin, Erwin Knoll. And uh, he used to, every four years or whatever, he had a syndicated column. He would write this column about why he doesn't vote because both parties are the same. They're both blah, blah, blah. And I always thought, you know, just because you don't have the perfect choice doesn't mean that you don't have a choice. You know, there was a big difference between Walter Mondale and Ronald Reagan. There's a huge difference between either of these Republicans and, or excuse me, either of these Democrats and any of the Republicans. So if you don't vote, you are voting, you know. And so to me, you have no excuse not to vote. Absolutely. I, I, I want to get into, you know, yes, it may not be as ugly as the Republican Party, but I do want to touch on just some of the things that are being said 
mainly via the internet when it comes to those who are supporting Bernie versus who are supporting Hillary. Um, and, you know, it's gotten sexist. It's gotten, you know, uh, uh, very offensive in, in my opinion. And I don't understand because I think that that's the strength of the Republican Party is by breaking down the progressives. Yeah, I mean, give some examples. What, what were the, the, the sexist things that, that have caught your attention? Well, I can only say from what I've seen on my Facebook feed, and that is filled with lots and lots of LGBTQI advocates and um, and, and not just advocates, but allies and uh, leaders, mm-hmm. if you will. And so it's very shocking to see somebody that I absolutely respect and that I, I, I value their opinion say something, um, you know, that's uh, uh, super sexist like you know, Hillary go home uh, kind of a thing like girls shouldn't be playing in the big boys, um, you know, camp and stuff like that. And so I don't understand, you know, when, you know, some gay progressives males are attacking Hillary Clinton's uh, candidacy because she's a, a woman. At the same time, you have lesbian supporters of Hillary Clinton who are really, 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 you know, diehard Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Um, be very insensitive about racial issues or, you know, ignore um, those of us who are concerned about the economy and uh, uh, big corporate takeovers and things like that. Um, so it's gotten you, you can see where people stand in their position and you start making judgments about them and you start making judgments about yourself. And you quickly realize that, you know, progressives are very, very, very diverse and different across the entire board. Well, it also shows, and this is going to be a wonky answer, but people aren't naturally brought up understanding politics, uh-huh. you know, what, what, and so most people actually want to go through life not having to worry about that kind of stuff. You know, I don't care about the trade bill. You know, what, what, why do I have to know that? Well, it very might, well, might affect you. It might affect your job. It might give you a job. It might take away a job. Who knows? Um, so anyway, when they're really drawn into an election, then. They're drawn into an election because they believe in Bernie or they, you know, believe in Hillary and, and they, they get very, very emotional about it. Um, they don't, however, necessarily play by Robert's rules of order when it comes to in- exchanging ideas and disagreements and such like that. And that would be wonderful if they did. But um, <laughs> instead, you know, what do they do? It's it's social media. They they I know. they regurgitate the really kind of the lowest common denominator. My fear so. is that we're so split between Bernie and Hillary um, that uh, you know the conservative or right wingers or the Republicans could kind of skate through. Um, you know how broken that we may be. That's kind of my fear. Like I mean, if I think about a Ted Cruz versus a Bernie Sanders. That's pretty scary. Then when I think about Bernie Sanders and uh, Donald Trump and seeing that he's winning, you know, certain states, uh, that's really even more scary. That's a nightmare. It, it is when you get folks who just are anti-establishment. They're just so mad at everything that's going on that um, they're, they will kind of skate between the parties, mm-hmm. you know. So you could have. Some I, and I, you know we've, we you you read enough of, of people's comments you 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 find the Donald Trump supporter who says yeah I'll vote for Bernie it's just, you know it's, it, because he's basically out there to shake things up same thing you, I've read Bernie supporters who would vote for Trump most however I don't think would most mm-hmm. of them would be you know for the respective party and they either would vote or they would not vote 
or they might vote but not do it. And, you know, they wouldn't be posting support for it and, and talking up their candidate to their friends. Um, what, what would be, if I may, just to take yeah. this then into the wider thing, which is, you know, Antonin Scalia, the Supreme Court justice who died recently, right. threw the whole Supreme Court thing back into the, the front uh, front headline, front headlines, headlines of, uh, you know, it's how important it is to have the candidate of your choice win the party of your choice, I should say, win the presidency. And then also the Senate races. You know, there are some very important Senate races around the country. If you're a, a progressive and you, you're hoping that uh, the Democrats could possibly win back the Senate, especially if it's a Trump or a Cruz who and, and the Republicans are worried about that. Um, you know, there are vulnerable Republican candidates in our incumbents in Wisconsin, Illinois, uh, both have strong uh, challenges from the Democrats. I mean, if you're not going to vote because you're you, you, you know, you didn't like Bernie's haircut or you think Hillary is dresses funny or something. Looks like a man. I've heard that. Yeah. Well, tough. You know, yeah. again, you don't get the perfect choice necessarily, yeah. but also all those other down ticket things. Those matter as well. Um, I have to bring this up. I know we only have a few minutes left, but uh, the white elephant in the room, you know, Hillary Clinton's most recent mistake in, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Nancy Reagan. Oh. Um, uh, that, it, that was definitely clearly a huge mistake on her part uh, by recognizing Nancy Reagan to have been a prominent voice or whatever she had said regarding the HIV AIDS community when we clearly know the Reagans were, were, were not. They ignored the, uh, the epidemic in itself. Um, there, there was a to go back to Facebook. There was a Facebook post of someone's article, and the headline was, the the writer had said this. The headline was, "I'm gay." Hillary Clinton misspoke while saying something nice about a dead woman. Get over it. Mm, I like that. I like that. I, I I can get down with that uh, because now it's like you know you've got huge uh, gay. Uh, LGBT activists who are calling her a liar, who are who are calling her, you know, a, a deceitful, or making her into this like, you know, the, the evil stepmother in well, in Snow White or I, something. Yeah, and again, that that's the the message that's been sowed for so long by the Republicans that she's a liar, that she's untruthful, and she doesn't help herself because she is so very controlled. In you know the statements. Well, if you were being attacked for you know every decade of your public life viciously as some sort of, you know, lesbian Vince Foster murderer, you would get self-conscious too. And then, of course, yeah, she's going to misspeak from sometimes. But if they really think that she actually intended to say what she said mm -hmm. and that she actually meant what she, you know, I mean, if, no, that's, that's someone, that I think is a good case of people just so eager to tear someone down that they're really turning off their, their brains. Thank you so much for that, John. So like I mentioned, John Zipper uh, hosts the week-to-week -week political roundtable talk right here on the Michelle Miao Show on Progressive Voices, Fridays, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. What do you got going on for us this Friday? I believe it's Michael Eric Dyson talking about the politics of race. Wow, that's great. Thank you so much for bringing us that program. Sure. Thank you all for joining us here today on this very important show. I am so excited we got through it. Damn the bugs of Microsoft 10. But uh, for everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com or catch our podcasts at commonwealthclub.org. Search meow. Just go commonwealthclub.org slash meow. We'll see you tomorrow, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Yeah.